0: When it comes to illnesses, outbreaks like Ebola, Zika, and now the measles are quick to make headlines. But despite killing tens of thousands of Americans every year, C. diff often fails to gain widespread attention. Brooklyn resident Christian Lillis is working to change that. I'm George Boldarki, and this is Cityscape. After his mother died from complications from a C. diff bug, Lillis founded an organization to educate the public and shape policies surrounding healthcare associated infections. It's called the Peggy Lillis Foundation. Christian is our guest on this week's Cityscape. Christian, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you so much for having me, George.
1: So first and foremost, who was Peggy? So Peggy Lillis was my mother. Um, She was born Margaret Mary Daly in Brooklyn, New York. She and then we grew up in a neighborhood called Bergen Beach, which is all the way out in South Brooklyn. And she became pregnant with me when she was 19. And as a result of that, um, married my father, (laughs) Um, which was not the world's best match. Um, So they split up when I was five, but not before they also uh, had my brother, Liam. And my mother was just one of the most incredible people that I've ever known Um, She was warm. She was giving. Growing up, she would have said, you know, especially after my dad left, that we didn't have a pot to piss in or a window to throw it out of. But if you were someone who was in need, um, if you were someone who was down on your luck, um, my mother would let you sleep on the couch and she would make sure that you were fed. Um, And if you were someone who was in mourning, she showed up. Um, And so she really was um in some ways the best example that we could have had as a as a parent and as someone to you know to emulate in our own lives and i would also just say that my mother is in some ways sort of typical of what we used to think of as the american dream in the sense of her marriage didn't work out she had married young she went back to school and got her ged And then the whole time raising us, she went to college and she first got her associate's degree, um, started working in the public schools as a a teacher's aide or a paraprofessional, um, continued going to college and eventually became a kindergarten teacher. And so she did this while working as a waitress to make ends meet, right? (laughs) Yes, because... Despite the the relentless campaigns of the last 40 years, no one can live on welfare. And welfare was actually much more generous when we were growing up. Um, And so yeah, so we got food stamps, we got a little bit of cash assistance. But a big part of it that enabled my mother to do this was also the community that we lived in. We lived in a two-bedroom apartment in a nice part of Brooklyn for $250 a month until I was, I think, 18. I think they raised the rent twice. I think we were paying 300 when we moved out uh, in, like, 1999. And, you know, obviously it was, it was to some extent her own persistence um, and her own desire to better herself and have a better life for us. But I think, you know, she went from that kind of person who some people might say, like you know, is taking advantage of the system by working and getting welfare. But in reality, you know, by the time that she became a teacher and then put both of us through school, um, we have given far more back to the to the society than we've taken. And I think that that is how those programs should work, and I don't think that those programs work that way anymore.
0: Unfortunately, your mom died an untimely death.
1: Yeah, um, so... This Sunday, um, April twenty first, uh, is going to be the ninth anniversary of my mother dying, and it has been actually quite a hard week um, for me and my family because um, she was such a big part of our lives, and her her death was was quite sudden, and you know, we can talk about it in more detail. But and it was out of left field in a way that we could not have predicted or imagined or avoided, and so. You know, that is really what inspired us to make sure that her death wasn't in vain. So what
0: happened to your mom? Why did she die young? She was in her 50s, right? She
1: was 56 years old. Mm -hmm. So my mother died from a um, a quite prevalent but very little known bacterial infection called Clostridium difficile. C. diff. C. diff is Mm -hmm. the most common way. And they've actually recently changed the... Technical name of it to something that I have not yet been able to pronounce because it's Latin. <laughs> um, but so, but for the most part, it was. It, since it was identified in 1978, it's been known as Clostridium difficile, or C. diff, or C. difficile, is the things you'll commonly hear it referred to as. And so, C. diff is a opportunistic infection of the gastrointestinal system, primarily the colon. Um, and what happens is that. Two to five percent of the population could have C. diff bacteria in their system, along with the literally millions of other kinds of bacteria, germs, viruses, um, and other microorganisms that make up our gastrointestinal system. So, just naturally existing there. Just na- I mean, they find C. diff in dirt, they find it in the feces of animals. There was a study done by the University of Texas several years ago where they went to literally every kind of place they could conceive of dentist's office radio station, you know, and people's homes, and they swabbed, and they found C. diff spores almost everywhere. But the way that this disease um, attacks your body is that when you take antibiotics, if your listeners are familiar with the idea of the microbiome, so we have this huge bacterial or or microbial forest sort of living in our guts, right? And some of that is really good for us, and it helps us process food and digest things that we don't actually even develop, have the enzymes for. And But when you take antibiotics or if you take another um, drug or something that alters that balance, this particular bacteria is incredibly hardy, and it will survive most broad-spectrum antibiotics. And so once the good bacteria that you need has been removed um, or n- knocked out of the way, then this bacteria proliferates um, and it kind of takes over all the space left by the other bacteria.
0: So your mom was on antibiotics for what? What reason?
1: So um, about a week before she became ill, she went to the dentist for a root canal. Um, this was her dentist of probably 20 years. Um, he was my dentist until I moved uh in with my husband and you know just didn't live nearby enough for him to be my dentist anymore. He was a very nice man. Um but prophylactically, which was kind of the way that they did it back then, um, he prescribed her clindamycin to ensure that there was not an infection that he didn't quite perceive. Sort of the desire was to be preventative. And so she's taking the antibiotic, everything's fine about four or five days into the antibiotic, she was actually finishing grad school at the time, she woke up in the middle of the night with this very urgent, um, volu- voluminous diarrhea. Um, and having been a kindergarten teacher for many years at that point, she did not connect it with the antibiotics. She, she thought is, she picked up a bug at school. Of course. She's surrounded by 25 five-year-olds all day. Um, and though she was a pretty healthy and robust person, like... You know, the law of averages is like maybe twice a year she'd get a head cold that was bad or or something. Um, So she just talked it up to that. She actually continued taking the antibiotic. Um, She ultimately called her primary care doctor. He, um, in what would have turned out to be a very terrible decision, um, and without seeing her, you know, actually seeing her in person and evaluating her, prescribed her a prescription strength anti-diarrheal. Um, and so she continued to take that and the antibiotic. And my brother and her had recently bought a ha- two family house together, so my brother was like checking in on her, bringing her soup, bringing her like whatever she could tolerate, and that went on for like three days, three or four days
0: so then when did you realize that you needed to get her
1: more medical attention stat so I remember very clearly. Um, my mother's mother was was still alive at that point. Um and I was talking to my mother my mother so my mother did not like to talk or be or sort of be waited on when she was sick. She just wanted you to leave her alone. And so we kinda did. And like I called her every day but she would be like, I don't feel well, I don't wanna talk. So my grandmother and I were like, you know, this has gone on, like three days of her like not getting out of bed is like really unusual for my mother. And so she had set up an appointment with a gastroenterologist for that Tuesday, and I agreed to take her because I had a job at the time that was quite flexible uh, in terms of my hours. And so so at the time, like, I'm thinking, we need to get this checked out. I'm primarily worried about dehydration, you know, things that are just when you've had diarrhea, and I'm like, it's maybe she had a parasite. Like, I'm just going through, like, the Rolodex in my mind of what it could be. Yeah, things related to a stomach bug. Yeah, she just a, bit, a particularly bad mm-hmm. stomach bug. Yeah. So the next morning, I went to her house, oddly enough, after my own dentist appointment. And when I got there, my brother was there, um, and he said that mom was up in the bath. Um, she believed that, that taking a bath would cure almost anything. <laughs> um, in fact, she once rented an apartment simply because there was a bath in it. She didn't even look at the rest of the apartment. <laughs> um so we went up to to the to the to the bathroom and we knocked on the door and at first she didn't answer um, and we got sort of really panicky and then my brother banged on the door and she was like come in come in so he came in and she was sitting in the bathtub and she had let the water drain but she had felt too weak to actually get herself up um, so we got her a towel we wrapped her in a towel my brother lifted her up out of the bed. Um, we took her to her bedroom, and at that point I said to her, I'm really concerned that you're too dehydrated, and if we take you to this GI appointment, they're just going to send us to the ER. Um, I had, had worked in healthcare in an administrative capacity in the past, so I kind of just knew how these things worked. Um, and she agreed, um, and so I said, okay, well, you get dressed and let me know if you need me to help help you with anything. Um, and I said, you know, do you want me to drive you or do you want to call an ambulance? Um and, you know, my mother at that point was a was a Department of Education teacher, and so she, you know, she j- was joking about how she had such great insurance and she might as well use it. So we called an ambulance. And at this point, we're thinking that, you know, we're going to take her to this hospital nearby her house, sort of just your average community hospital. Um, it wasn't even at that point affiliated with any of the big centers that we think of now, like Northwell or, um, or NYU. And... My whole thinking is they're going to come, they're going to take her, they're going to put her on a fluid IV, she's going to perk up, and they're going to run tests and figure out what this is. So the first ambulance gets there, and they come upstairs, and they take her blood pressure, and her blood pressure is 70 over 40, which is extremely low. And she was diaphoretic. She had other signs of being quite ill. Um, And so they decided that they were concerned that their ambulance didn't have any sort of life support ability, and so they called for a secondary ambulance. And that was when I began to become very concerned. But I was very concerned about us having let her get so dehydrated. Mm-hmm. you know, And also her being kind of like a tough Irish lady who didn't tell us how bad she was really feeling. But again, I'm just thinking, we're going to you know, get her to the hospital, we're going to give her fluids, it's going to be fine. But I called my aunt. My mother's older sister is a is a nurse, a registered nurse, and she was actually working at, at North Shore LIJ uh, in Long Island at that point. And I said, are you off? And she said, yeah. I said, can you just meet me? Because, like, you know, she seems sicker than I thought she was, and I'm just nervous. Like, I would love a, a second pair of ears um, and someone who knows medicine. So we meet there. They take my mother in. Um, they ask what she's taking. She tells them the antibiotics. She tells them the... Uh, you know, she tells them about the the anti-diarrheal. Um, you know, and they, they check her in and they start blood tests and probably within a half an hour or an hour, um, both the infectious disease attending, the emergency room attending, and a surgeon come and ask to speak with us. And I called my brother at that point, so he was there as well. And they took us, you know, to the side, away from my mother, and they said... Your mother's white cell count is forty thousand, which is four or five times what it should be, hmm. and that is an indication that you have a massive systemic infection. And we were stunned, and I'll never forget. The doctor said we think that she has what we would call toxic megacolon, and that it's caused by Clostridium difficile. Now, first time you ever heard that term, I'm sure. <clears throat> I mean, I had worked uh, as a fundraiser in healthcare for many, many years. Uh, there were buildings in Manhattan that I helped raise the money <laughs> to build cancer centers, uh, and I had never heard of this this bug before. Um, my aunt, who had been an oncology nurse for many years, turned to them and said, "How can she have C diff? Huh. She's a fifty six year old woman who hasn't been in the hospital like since she gave birth thirty years ago." And they said, well, that's what we think it is. That's what she's presenting. Is
0: that because, sorry, is that because that's a bug that's typically contracted
1: within a hospital setting? So back then in 2010, they would have referred to C. diff as a hospital-associated infection. Mm -hmm. Um, They've broadened that definition for a variety of reasons. Um, So now they consider it a healthcare-associated infection, um, and we can... We can talk more about that, but at the time, it was primarily associated with the elderly risk factors of being sixty-five and over, um, and people that had been hospitalized or been in a nursing home. So, that's where your aunt's question, yeah. Comes so, from. to mm-hmm. my aunt, she had seen this bug, but she had seen this bug in super immunocompromised people or in the very elderly, mm-hmm. um, and she had never seen somebody who had was a healthy teacher teaching every day who suddenly had C diff, and that's also part of how the how these bugs, you know, mutate. So um, they put this aside, they're explaining this to us, and they say, you know, your mother has a life threatening infection. Her kidneys are going into failure, and she's going into septic shock. And as a result of that, we need one of you to agree to be her healthcare proxy because sepsis can have cognitive impairment, and she can't make decisions for herself. And the weird parallel universe that we felt like we were living in in that moment was they're telling us this while my mother's sitting up in a bed in the ER asking why she can't have a diet Pepsi hmm. and can only have ice chips. Um, and like she was sluggish, but she was herself in every way. And so their initial plan was to confirm the diagnosis through a stool test and through um you know, a, a, a colonoscopy, a CAT scan, just to, you know, to assure that that's what they were treating. Um, and to do that, they had to sedate her. And they also intubated her because her vital signs were so poor, despite their efforts to, like, give her fluids, give her blood pressure support. They were afraid that if she coded the, you know, in a CAT scan machine, like, how would they get to her? So, um, So that's what we had to agree to, to kind of get the process moving.
0: So then, how soon after that did your mom take a turn?
1: So after they did the CAT scan um, and the colonoscopy and everything, and they moved her to ICU, and she was still um, kind of intubated and, and sedated, they said to us, um, "She has a life-threatening infection." They were, despite being this this small hospital, they were reaching out to their colleagues, you know, at Mount Sinai, at NYU, to like people in the field and. My brother said, like, should we move her? And they were like, that would be against medical advice because we didn't know that she would survive being moved. Like, there are so many things that can go wrong um, if she was to be moved. And we feel like the safest thing for her is to stay here. Um, And this hospital also kind of catered to an elderly population. And so one of the things that also sticks out for me is that the surgeon pulled us aside at one point and said, you know, your mother is the sickest person in this hospital right now. So what they said to us was that they um, that they wanted to do probably a colectomy to remove her colon, but her vital signs were so bad that they were afraid she wouldn't survive surgery. So the plan became to treat her with. Um, they put in a central line to treat her aggressively with vancomycin, which is a, an antibiotic used to fight C. diff, IV immunoglobin, which is a thing to boost your immune system. Um, and they were also giving her, in case there was a blockage, they were also giving her vancomycin enemas overnight. And so that was the plan, and we were told that they were going to check her overnight. The surgeon was going to call in, check her overnight. If she started to, to take a turn for the better... Um, then we would reevaluate. And if she did not improve, then they would want to remove her colon in what they called an attempt to save her life.
0: So between the time your mom went into the hospital and
1: the time of her death, how much time are we talking about? 36 hours. 36 hours. Yeah, the next morning, um, the surgeon called at 6 a.m. and he said, she has not really improved and we think that having this Basically, toxic megacolon is your colon is infused with all of these toxins that are given off as the C. diff reproduces, and it starts to get necrotic. And so they were thinking, if we remove her colon and take out the primary source of this infection, it'll let everything else, it'll let the other interventions that they're making have more of a fighting chance. So we had to meet them at the hospital. We had to consent to all that. Um, And I don't know if I mentioned this earlier, but my mother was one of nine children, and I'm the oldest of 20 grandchildren on her, just her side of the family. And so, you know, we got there quite early. We started letting people know how serious it was and that she was going to have surgery that morning. And I would say by about the time she went in for surgery at like 1030, there was about 50 people at the hospital <laughs> outside of this tiny waiting room. And it was mostly cousins and you know good friends and my godmother and people like that and thankfully she survived the surgery. In fact, the surgery went much better than they ever would have anticipated. And so we had a sort of renewed hope. And so, you know, we left a few people there and we went back to have lunch and then we came back and from the time I came back in the afternoon, um, you know, her vitals had been improving. Things seemed to be going okay. Um, but then once we got back there in the afternoon, the ICU attending came to us and said, um, we have her on 100% oxygen and her blood is not oxygenating. And, you know, I had given you some sense of who my mother was, but if you knew my mother, you would know that, you would think of all of the people that would come through something so horrific it would be her. And so we're sitting there, and again, there's probably like 40 people there. And um, the... He, the ICU attending comes out. Um, he's actually one of the most strikingly handsome men I've ever seen in my life. It's just like this thing that resonates where like you're like this, you know, get kind of cut through the fog of what was going on. Um, and he came out and he said, you know, I'm very sorry to tell you that Peggy has passed. They tried um, multiple times to revive her, um, but essentially she died from sepsis.
0: So that was the cause of death listed on her
1: death certificate? So her death certificate says that the immediate cause of death is what they call disseminated intravascular coagulopathy, which basically means that your blood has stopped clotting. And so you begin to hemorrhage all throughout your body. So thankfully, we did not see any of that. And most of it is happening internally. But, you know, the more that that happens, the less that your blood, you know, your heart doesn't work as well. And and so, yeah, so it was that was the immediate cause of death. Um, the secondary cause was sepsis, you know, was that sepsisemia, septic shock.
0: But C. diff is not included
1: on her death certificate, C. Correct? diff is not mentioned on her death certificate.
0: How problematic is that? Should it be there?
1: I definitely think it should be there. Um, you know, we... So, and the odd thing is, like, so C. diff is not anywhere on her death certificate, though... Because she was a young woman, and the people in this hospital had never seen a case like hers before, the medical examiner's office um, wanted to autopsy her, and we really wanted answers, so we agreed to it, um, even though we didn't love the idea of having our mother autopsied. And from there, when we got the report back, which was a whole other journey. But the report says C. diff, C. diff, C. diff, toxic megacolon, toxic megacolon, and her death certificate says C. diff nowhere. And so many of the studies, and we can talk about kind of the numbers and and what the prevalence of this disease is. You know, if you're looking at death certificates or if you're looking at the cause of death listed in a hospital record, oftentimes it might tell you, you know, the cause of death is sepsis. Okay, that's true and sepsis is actually a huge problem we work with sepsis groups but what caused you to have sepsis because sepsis is basically it's almost the the equivalent of a heart attack or your or a cardiac arrest right so like you have cardiac arrest and you die but why did you have a cardiac arrest did you have you know a virus in your heart that caused it? Did you have a clogged artery? Did you have one of those like weird sudden death situations where like you just had atrial fibrillation? Like, so, so it's a really incomplete picture. Um, And one of the things that we are very concerned about is that that incomplete picture means that we don't have a full, a full picture of how many people are dying from this um, largely preventable disease.
0: What is the estimate in
1: terms of how many people are dying from C. diff in America? So, our friends at the Centers for Disease Control, who we have um, who've been very good to us in this sense, and have really let us kind of have input uh, with other patient advocacy groups, the latest number that they put out was about twenty nine thousand deaths a year, where C diff was either the primary or sort of contributing cause of death. Now, we understand that those numbers are conservative, and they will tell you that those numbers are conservative. And there was a report done. Of- back in 2008, by a gentleman uh, named William Jarvis, who's a former CDC person. And at that point, based on a a different methodology entirely, he thought that it might be 100,000 deaths a year. Um, And what we do know is that since, you know, in the period between like mid 2000s to like mid 2010s, C. diff got a lot worse. So it's hard to exactly know. But I mean, you know when you think about a number like twenty nine thousand that is actually more people than die of gun deaths in this country. that's more people than die of drunk driving. it's more people than die of h i v and where those three you know what are clearly public health issues as well, there have been enormous campaigns both by public and private groups to raise awareness to change behavior um and obviously with h i v and Um, drunk driving, we've had enormous success. Uh, Gun violence is a whole other bailiwick.
0: The news, of course, is quick to talk about diseases like Ebola and Zika, now the measles. Why is it that C. diff is not as prominent a discussion topic?
1: I remember because we were already doing this work with the foundation when the Ebola outbreak happened in America. And I think that there's, you know, there's something exotic about Ebola. There is a sense of, like, this is something that happens in other places, and now it's here. There have been films done about, um, you know, hemorrhagic fever. And so um, there's almost kind of like a like a Hollywood excitement component to it. Um, and then also, like, the people who we were able to blame for Ebola were, for Ebola being here, were, like, individuals. Like, um, and that's part of, like, just a really bad narrative technique of some of the media where it became, you might recall this poor doctor who had done Doctors Without Borders and came back and he did everything right. The I minute mean, he had symptoms, he went to Bellevue. He said, I think I have a bowl. <laughs> I need to be checked in. I mean, um, and so, but the news, and if you looked at social media, like the news would have made you think that, like, this guy had licked every aspect of the L train and bled all over the place. Like, it was just really, really hysterical. Uh, and so, so I think that that's part of why you get something like Ebola. I mean, <clears throat> the measles, I don't feel quite as comfortable talking about just because I don't know as much about it. But I think there is a sense that when people don't see things in their lives anymore, they think that they're fine. How soon after your mom's
0: death did you start this foundation?
1: I My entire career was spent in uh, nonprofit fundraising advocacy. I worked a lot in the LGBTQ rights movement. Um and as I mentioned earlier, in healthcare. Um, so we were probably officially started by like June. So within maybe two months, in the sense that like we were committed to doing something.
0: So you're, of course, looking to raise awareness about C. diff and affect change. Where are you
1: trying to affect change mostly? So in terms of raising awareness, the baseline that we started off with, about 2014, there was a study done that showed that about a quarter of Americans had ever heard of C. diff. And that just means that they've heard the word. And as you mentioned earlier with Ebola... At the same time, eighty percent of Americans had heard of Ebola, and so like the actual risk factors for Ebola are very, very tiny if you live in a Western country. So, but thankfully, it's begun to increase to about thirty-three uh, percent as of twenty eighteen. So, we're looking to to raise awareness for people to understand this disease and and know how to prevent it. But then, in terms of advocacy, we have um, a sort of multi level approach. Um, so, we have been quite involved in ensuring that the funding for the critical public agencies like the Centers for Disease Control, the Food and Drug Administration, um, actually USDA, because uh, they find C. diff in, in our farm animals and in, and in meat that we eat. So we've been involved in ensuring that their funding is maintained. Ultimately, what we're looking to do is to greatly increase the funding for public awareness um, to ensure that new treatment modalities are available for this disease and also to ensure that the surveillance of the disease is accurate and that we have really good numbers and those numbers are publicly available and that, you know, the hospitals and the healthcare centers that are not doing a good job should be held accountable for not doing a good job. Um, At the same time, we need to make sure that the system... We don't create a system that encourages them to hide the fact that they're having outbreaks, which uh, has been happening. And your website, Christian, is? PeggyFoundation.org. Christian, thank you so much for coming in. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Christian Lillis is the executive director and co-founder of the Peggy Lillis Foundation. Once again, more information at PeggyFoundation.org. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Boraki. Thank you so much for listening.